This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Chad Grills is a difficult to define guy. Uh, and those are the kind of people I usually like to talk to. They don't have an, an easy, quick title like HR director at company X, but is someone who does a lot of things. He's involved in a lot of different activities. He's clearly um, intoxicated by ideas and by, I don't know, what I would call, I guess, lifelong learning, life optimization. He is the editor of the publication on Medium called Life Learning, which has a constant stream of fascinating articles by people like that you've probably heard of, like James Altucher or Jeff Goins or Robert Green, uh, and some people that you may not have heard of, like Isaac Morehouse and some others. <laughs> and uh, Chad blogs, he's written several books, um, he, he speaks. So I just want to talk a little bit about kind of living an unconventional life and, and what motivates uh, you, Chad. So let's start with, I gave a, a very sketchy bio. Just tell us your story. <laughs> tell us your story. What, where are you from? What, what are yeah. you all about? And how did you kind of end up uh, being this sort of polymath autodidact? <laughs> well, I appreciate all those compliments. That was a long string there. Um, yeah. So first off, I think it's a huge compliment to not be able to be easily defined um, of course, I'm all in favor of, uh, you know, elevator pitches and uh, short and concise answers. But at the same time, I think if you drill down with anybody, I think it's a huge compliment to really pursue the type of things that are hard to define uh, just by nature. Those are the things that tend to be a little bit more valuable um, for yourself and for others. So I guess, I mean, my story of uh, learning, of doing things, of trying things, it really starts all the way back in third grade in my elementary school in a, a podunk hillbilly town in Western Maryland. And we had a gifted and talented program at the school for, I think it was uh, a little over two and a half years. And at the end of that program in, uh, I was, I just started the third grade. Uh, the program ended, I don't know if they didn't have money or whatever, but they shut it down. And from then on, it would be a nice explanation to say that I was trying to escape from school <laughs> and I was uh, doing everything I could to either get out or uh, learn <laughs> and do things and uh, have adventures and <clears throat> you know start businesses and things like that. And from that, I did many different things all throughout high school. Uh, I went to college and after two years, I was very, very uh, dissatisfied with what I was paying for. I was paying for it myself. I was very confused about that as to what exactly I was buying. I really wanted a challenge. I wasn't sure where to look, and I ended up joining the military. I joined the military. Initially, I was going to do ROTC. Uh, I was going to use it to pay for the rest of school and things like that. And as I got into the military, I realized that this wasn't going to be a path I wanted to stay in long term, but I realized it could be an excellent challenge. And so I actually opted out of ROTC. I deployed to Iraq with my unit, and I ended up going. We also deployed to Egypt. I did security for the presidential inauguration. <clears throat> that was Obama's first inauguration. Uh, I was involved in a military advertising campaign that's done uh, millions of views, impressions. It still plays on radio and TV. Um, I, I did that back in 2012, and it still plays continuously now, which is uh, always fun to get made fun of uh, from <laughs> friends when you're a uh, yeah, you're sitting there and then you know, my voice comes on and tells you to join the military. So 
uh, I've just done many, many things. And then after the military, I taught myself design um, as I was approaching my exit. And I started building some apps, started building some, uh, some products, talking to investors, uh, writing books along the way. Um, I met my wife, fell in love. So that's a uh, <laughs> a pretty tactical. Yeah. So uh, I mean, detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the transition from from the military to you know I I I, I don't even know how you describe your life now. Sort of a yeah. I mean, you write, you you edit, you do some speaking. You're you're kind of um, involved in the world of ideas. Certainly, that yeah. must have been a, a a bit of a challenging transition. I mean, what was that? What was that <clears throat> like? And did you have to kind of did you have any sort of shock from going from a, a more structured environment where kind of goals were set out for you to one where you're kind of creating your own way? Uh, yeah, yes and no. So the uh, military is challenging in kind of all the ways that you wouldn't think it would be on the surface. Um, it's actually not that structured. So there are a lot of things that you are obviously forced to do, and it's a, a very, uh, you know, top down you're going to do this uh, type thing, not a lot of choices. But when you go on a deployment or anything along those lines, you actually have quite a bit of choice in what you do. So I'd say on those deployments, I really started to build up the habits. And you know, even after a long day, firing up Photoshop and creating some mock-ups or some uh, templates that were just horrible and uh, just continuing to do that despite the, uh, the subpar quality. And um, so that's... Uh, I guess uh, yeah, the military, if anything, it just taught me to embrace and be comfortable in uncertainty, which is, yeah, very valuable. Now you've written what, four books? Yeah. Yeah. Four books now. Um, three, uh, nonfiction, actually, actually five is a collection of short stories, but, uh, yeah, so I wrote some nonfiction books and I more recently, after I got my feet wet and kind of built up the writing muscle a little bit, I uh, jumped into fiction. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about fiction in a second, but writing in general, I mean, when you wrote your first book, what was the, cause I, I know that there's this kind of feeling, um, among people who are maybe interested in writing, they've done a little bit here and there that like, you have to have permission to write a book, you know, that's only for <laughs> professionals. And it's kind of, you feel yeah. like there's a sense of almost guilt. Like, sure. Like you don't want to be like, cocky self-promoter. Oh, I'm writing a book. And people are like, Oh my gosh, who does this guy think he is writing a book? What, what did Without you, I mean, did you have to wrestle with some of that stuff when, and how did you decide to write a book and what was that like? I did. Yeah. So I think anybody that's uh, going to do something like that is really going to wrestle with that. Um, if anything, I can say that my, uh, you know, not paying attention and really trying to, uh, fight the system in school beforehand, it really served me well. Cause I think a lot of the the more rules and the more self, uh, you know, self type of self critique you have, the less you're going to have a chance to actually get those ideas onto paper, or the less you're going to be able to take a plot and develop it over the course of say a year or two years. Uh, you're never going to give yourself permission to do that if you're playing by the rules of whatever your high school English teacher said or whatever your MFA program. Uh, teacher is like beat into your head. No, I, think I, it's, I, yeah. I remember one time oh, I'll let you finish in a second. I, I remember you just reminded me of, I was in a class, uh, a writing class in my, in my teens, I think. And it wasn't a very good class. And the, <laughs> I, and the, um, the teacher was like, I think it was the AP style book. 
And yeah. I, I don't remember if it was a journalism class. It must have been if it was the AP style. But it's like, you know, here's how you need to write things. You got to, you know, always look to this, refer to this and make sure, you know, if you're writing a number, when does it need to be spelled out? When did, you know, all these rules and things. And I immediately got so depressed and I was like, this is, I don't even want to write anymore. I'm just, yeah. I'm always going to do everything wrong. And like, when you start with the rules, it kind of kills the entire process and you feel like, well, I'll never be an expert. I'll never have this memorized. I don't even want to. Um, and 100%. yeah, it robs you from that. So anyway, go ahead. That's the key to creating things that nobody will ever read. And you know, that's going to be just, <laughs> you know, scholarly articles and things like that. And it's, uh, I'm not saying my books are amazing or anything like that, but you're never going to give yourself permission if you, you know, if you keep looking for the rules. So your first book, what was it about? My first book was a 365 day, uh, kind of like a, a, dev, a secular devotional. Okay. <laughs> you could yeah. call it that. Yeah. And it was just basically 365 different philosophical musings on everything from, uh, the benevolence of technology companies to claiming personal agency towards, uh, treating, you know, everything in your life, basically treating yourself as a function and all your inputs are going to create a certain output. So basically like 365 different mindsets to have a better life. And, and uh, I think, think about the future. And you self-published this or how did how was that process? I did. Yeah. So I just self-published it on Amazon, on uh, KDP and that's uh, use create space for the paperback. And that was just basically uh, to see if I could write a book, if I, uh, liked it. And it was a, it was a great challenge to kind of think more clearly, uh, to better define my thoughts. And yeah. Do you, are you always writing or only when you're working on a book? Like, do you write every day or a certain number of times a week? I am. I've, I've found that, uh, writing is just, it's really, really great to, uh, take a thread of an idea and develop it to the point where someone else can hear it and, uh, relate to it. So it's not, uh, so it sounds, usable and it's, uh, you can make ideas applicable at, just by writing about them. So in the, in the mornings, I'll typically like journal for a little bit or, uh, write something out. And the and journal is just purely or, personal that, that you're not sharing public scribbles. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, basically just scribbles and, uh, just to get me started. I mean, often with anything, getting started is the hardest part and I will, um, yeah, write in there briefly and then hop right over into Scrivener. I'm working on a, a new, uh, a longer series of books, and uh, that's where yeah, all my writing energy is going right now. And do you have a certain like, you know, okay, I must write X number of words every day or spend this amount of time? Do you have a particular uh, work style for, for working on the books? Yeah, I just have a rough, uh, you know, if I can get over 2,000 or over 3,000 words, it's uh, it's a good day. And that's, uh, that's basically it. That's, uh, I'll budget a couple of hours in the morning and I'll knock it out then. And do you edit it while you're writing or do you just write it all out and then do a big edit? At I the try. End? Yeah, I, I try not to at all. So I'll come back and edit it later. I'll, uh, there's a, a program called Grammarly. I'll throw it onto Grammarly and uh, check it out out and edit it and start the, uh, the re- revision process later. But um, yeah, I found that that's uh trying to edit as you go is, you know, if you're doing a singular article, sometimes that works great, but a rabbit hole of self-doubt and <laughs> yep. 
Yep. Not, yeah. The, know, the next thing you know, you're you're like, oh, this whole, this whole book's horrible. <laughs> it, it's weird. There's sort of a, at least for me, there, there's sort of a sweet spot with editing where I never want to edit while I'm writing. I just want to write. But then I also don't want to wait too long because, especially if it's like a, an individual one-off post, because if I like come back and yeah. read it the next day when I'm not in the same frame of mind as when I wrote it, I'll tend to be more likely to say, oh, I don't really know if I want to say this. I don't know. I'll, I'll edit the content too much and I'll feel it's like you're more yeah. self-conscious when you're not in the moment of inspiration. So I kind of like to like write it and then take 10 minutes, let it sit and then edit it real quick and then like click post before I read <laughs> before I have second thoughts. Yeah, completely agree. So life learning, it is a publication on medium where you basically curate, uh, a whole bunch of articles from some, some really fascinating sources and, um, I mean, it's, it's an awesome publication. I absolutely love it. The, the theme, uh, you've nice. got listed here, accelerated learning, anti-fragility and definite optimism. And I recognize definite optimism from, uh, from <laughs> Peter, um, Peter Thiel's book, uh, that phrase in, in yeah. his book, zero to one anti-fragile, uh, I know Nassim Tlaib talks about that quite a bit. Um, talk to me a little bit about what motivated you to launch life learning and sort of your, your process, your philosophy there, what it's, what it's all about and what, what made you decide that you want to kind of curate this stuff and share it with the world? Sure. So it's it had a very uh, strange origin it actually got started. Uh, when I first started building, publishing and launching some apps, the first publication I did was a, uh, it was called education magazine and it was a magazine for, uh, teachers, um, strangely enough. And I'm, uh, I'm really interested in building, um, ultimately building a learning platform. So I wanted to get my feet wet and uh, build in the uh, education space. So my wife and I, we built a publication for teachers and it was an Apple iPad magazine. We actually got some, uh, some traffic, some decent revenue. And we, we ran it for about a year before we wound it down. It was just, uh, it was very time consuming. It was, uh, it had some serious potential, but it was also not where I wanted to go. And right about that time, Medium was starting to take off. And I just basically just jumped uh, jumped over to Medium and said this is much more uh, aligned with you know my personal interests and it's something that I can see doing for a long period of time. And so that's uh, the, that's the origins of life learning. But it's, uh, it's based on three things that I just I really feel uh, passionately about. And if uh, you know for individuals and for our society as a whole, uh, those three things are just, uh, really powerful, uh, ideologies that don't hurt anybody <laughs> for the yeah. most part. startup world in the world of innovation who are fighting for um, basically creating the practical implementation of those ideas. And there's no ideology behind it, but it's sort of, I mean, you take uh, Uber is one one of the easy examples, right? There's people who've been, who've been writing and talking for years about 
how taxi cartels uh, are inefficient and you know corrupt and blah blah blah. And trying to trying to wage that battle purely on the ideas front, which is very very hard because of all the vested interest. And you take Uber, sure. who it's like, hey, let's serve customers with something, and um, are able to basically solve that problem in a way that sort of supersedes that the discussion of underlying ideologies um, of you know free markets versus controlled markets, whatever. I just find it to be a really interesting thing that's happening, and it kind of innovation in, in entrepreneurship kind of allow us to transcend arguments over, um, ideology at times, which is, percent. Uh, yeah, which I think a, a huge, a huge, uh, positive development. Okay. I want to ask yes, you briefly yeah. about these three topics that life learning yeah. is about. What do you mean by accelerated learning? Just learning really fast. Is there, is there a specific meaning to that or an inspiration for that phrase? For me, it's, I think when we talk about learning, you know, if you learn, that's often a polite way to say, uh, you're evolving. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not a humble brag. It's not anything silly like that. But, you know, the one thing that humans do is, is we, we learn. We're learning machines. And I think that we're hardwired for uh, all kinds of negative behavior. And the best way to kind of master yourself, master your own personal psychology, and achieve what you want is to become a learning machine. I think you're either going to become uh, addicted to all sorts of other, you know, negative things that are out there, or you're going to become addicted to learning. And hmm. that's a, an oversimplification hmm. of it. But I really don't see a, a lot of when I've had a chance to meet really successful people and uh, everybody from, um, I mean, Peter Thiel, Ch Chase Jarvis, Tim Ferriss, like these, these are all people, I, I'm not going to speak for them, but just in general, a lot of them have addictive personalities. Yeah. And they, they've, they found a way to transcend that and focus that on uh, learning and trying to figure out how they're going to be the servant of many. And that's the type of thing that's uh, really, really fascinating. So any way we can speed that up with, you know, without getting negative, you know, iatrogenics yeah. <laughs> or anything like that is a, uh, is a great, great thing in my mind. That's a fact. I really like that way of putting it, that there's this human propensity to chase a high of some kind, a, yes. a release of dopamine or whatever. Um, and rather than spend your whole life trying to sort of be an, an ascetic and, and fight that and say, I will, I will not, you know, chase these highs. I will not try to right. go for the, the rush <laughs> is to say, okay, what, what can I do you know, in, in, in a, in a healthy, non-destructive way that allows me to get that high, whether it's uh, some form of physical competition or whether it's, I mean, learning to me, like uh, my, my good friend, um, TK Coleman says, I, ideas are my, uh, intoxication philosophy is my psychedelic. And I think that's a, that's a really true statement for him. And for many others, I know that they've kind of found a way to engage in big, crazy, wild ideas and to get that rush and to get that feeling that I think we all seek, um, that's powerful. Yeah. channel it yeah to something that's not not destructive that's so powerful and so important too because i mean oftentimes when we talk about like self-destructive behavior or something like that we think about things that are abrupt and the reality is like in our modern societies you know most many many people are engaged in very slow self-destructive behaviors which are arguably uh you know just as just as bad yeah mm -hmm. if not worse and so accelerated learning is kind of a uh, a stab at the alternative which is transmuting those base desires into things that are positive, have a net gain for society. Yeah. People can, people can come by life learning every day for a quick bump of, uh, you know, a quick hit of ideas. <laughs> so, so anti, <laughs> anti-fragility, um, 
give give me a give me your your synopsis of uh, why that is the the sort of second second main set of ideas that you're focusing on here and what that means to you. Sure, because I, I think too, we're when we look at the world around us, and this is uh, Nassim Taleb has given uh, free reign to everyone to you know kind of open source the anti fragile idea. So uh, I'll, I'm trying not to take words directly from him here, but when we look at the world around us, what we we fail to see and what we don't understand a lot is that we're seeing uh, survivorship. We're seeing the result of the end results of evolution. We're seeing um, post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth is something that's uh, basically all around us. And there is no growth without trauma. Now, it might not be uh, you know, a, a sharp, incredible amount of trauma. It might be a, a very small bit of, uh, of damage. But if we look at biology in the, in the human body, you know, our cells grow stronger through something called hormesis. Um, you know, you fast to gain newfound energy to clean out old cells. Um, and if we look at the world around us, uh, it's anti-fragile. It is the things that survive um, us, just the result of our evolution. That's proof that we are anti-fragile beings. And when we seek a lifestyle of fragility, of comfort, of easy, you know, getting everything as easily as we can, we uh, kind of deny our true nature. And uh, to, in my mind, anti-fragile is a, a much more uh, useful philosophy that you can apply to the world and yourself. Yeah. And I found the, that paradigm to be, it's got that added layer of dimension beyond just saying, um, you know, fragile or something that's easily breakable. That's not, you know, it's kind of weak and something that's really sturdy and strong. And if you only operate on that sort of continuum, it's easy to say, okay, well, I don't want to be be or be a part of anything that's you know sort of fragile and, and might be broken or disrupted. I want to be a part of things that are firm and strong. But, but anti-fragile is different from fragile or not fragile. It's this concept that actually chaos and disruption makes you stronger. And so in some contexts, it could be things that, that aren't particularly sturdy necessarily or firm, um, because they're they're somewhat flexible, but just that the the chaos, you know, I think I think the the analogy of like a tree that that can bend and that's why it's strong is because it's because it does bend and yeah. because some of the branches even snap off in a storm and that actually makes it stronger and it you know the the stresses improve the strength of the um, system or the or the individual and I think that's a really powerful metaphor beyond just trying to trying to surround yourself in a real you know some sort of really sturdy shell. Uh, that can shatter. Um, but saying, right. Hey, I want to be, I want to be flexible and adaptable so that when, when the, you know, the storms come, so to speak, um, it'll actually make me, make me stronger. Um, yeah, absolutely. Definite optimism. I, I don't know if Peter Thiel is the first to, to coin the phrase, but I, I came across it in, in zero to one and, and I absolutely loved it. And I think what I loved about it so much is again, like anti-fragile added another dimension to sort of a simple, pessimist versus optimist notion, because I think I am naturally very optimistic, but sometimes that doesn't channel itself in a definite way. It's this, this indefinite optimism. Sure. It's almost, it's almost yeah. like a 401k optimism, right? Put everything in a 401k <laughs> because the market always goes up, right? Like, don't worry, yeah. the market will grow. And like the system, somehow the world at large will get better. I trust that versus like the startup kind of optimism, which is more definite. Forget the market and trusting my 7% returns to, you know, an index fund. I'm going to bet on myself. I have a definite reason for optimism. It's because of my definite plan and actions. 
really, really powerful stuff. What, what motivated you to, to make that sort of your third pillar? Uh, zero to one was just, uh, you know, reading that book. I've definitely, uh, I've read everybody from Ludwig von Mises, uh, a little bit of Rene Girard and just many, many people have, uh, kind of led me or, you know, inspired me to check out Peter Thiel's work. And when I finally found zero to one, it was just, uh, amazing. I mean, I've read that book several, several times now <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, I'm going to keep doing so. Um, it's one that, you know, with rereading, it becomes uh, even more valuable. But definite optimism, optimism was just so powerful because it kind of, it defined something I knew but couldn't say for such a long period of time. Uh, I, I knew that a lot of the uh, optimism that I either saw around me or I saw in other people or I was frustrated with in myself, it wasn't a, uh, a real sort of optimism. It was, it was much more uh, wishful thinking than it was. Uh, I'm going to define what I have, what I'm doing, and the I'm going to define every single step I need to get there. Yet I'm still going to be you know, pragmatic enough to change course and kind of tack as I go uh, back and forth. And it was just it, was, it kind of explained everything to me. Um, it explained a lot of the uh, you know life in America that we see now. Um, somebody else is going to take care of it. That's kind of uh, one of the prevailing uh, ideologies. Um, it explains Europe. So if we look at Europe, Europe is kind of, uh, um, optimistic right now, indefinitely. So, um, so, so everybody's focused on longer vacations or, um, their biggest worry is, uh, you know, Greece or something like that, which is uh, all almost nihilistic in a sense. So definite optimism is just about, uh, I have these ideas and I'm going to create a better future. And that's it. End of story. You know, it's a, it's a great way of, Calling the the beneficial aspects of sort of um, self help in the kind of cheesy sense of the word self help. Like if you go to a self help section of a bookstore, you'll see some some good stuff and some stuff that's kind of fluffy. But the 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 downside of a lot of that is, as you said, it almost has a magical like just believe good things, yeah. wake up happy, and you know goodness will come to you. And it's it's got the optimism part right, but it's. It sort sure. of denies the individual agency in, in one of the lines in, in Zero to One. And I remember uh, Teal said, you're not a lottery ticket. And yes. I yes. really like that. They're like, look, optimism is great, but like have a reason for it. Have a plan. Have Understand that you're the agent who can bring these things about um, and go about it with, with, with a purpose. Um, Chad, I, I wanted to ask you what your, I don't know, what what is the... What is the thing that sort of holds you back? What's the biggest personal obstacle that you try to kind of have to continually work to, to overcome? Especially uh, with, you know, writing or doing anything creative, it would definitely be uh, a tendency to use uh, my imagination to imagine worst case outcomes for myself. Or mm-hmm. I've, I've found that if I don't fully expend my imagination in the morning, it's I'm basically a, a problem with, you know, with many people or I can't help out to the extent that I want to. I'm encountering situations and I'm, you know, imagining, uh, you know, malintent from people or I'm not as helpful as I generally could be. Huh. Um, so that's a, a huge, huge self-defeating behavior that uh, up until recently, um, yeah, <laughs> my wife suffered the, uh, the brunt of <laughs> the, uh, my, my idiocy in that area, but uh, she she really helped me to see that more, and she helped me to 
yeah, just to, you know, encourage me to channel that a little bit better. So when I go out after expending that imagination, I can be much more uh, practical instead of irrational. That's, that's interesting. I, I think there, there's something in there that's somewhat similar or relatable to me, which is kind of this, if I don't do creative, productive stuff early in the day, right away, not only do I feel a little bit more listless, but I, I start to get kind of mischievous and I'll kind of, yes. I'll kind of spend too much time, like <laughs> popping onto social media and like doing things that I normally know are not productive or beneficial, like reading comments or things like they were, where I'm just kind of, I'm kind of just like, I got, I've got some sort of frustration. I need an outlet for this, this lack of, I haven't produced or created or channeled that in a positive way. And so I'm just looking to stir up, <laughs> stir up trouble. So yes. I, I, yeah, I found I, the same things. So, okay. What do you want to, I mean, is there like a particular mark you want to leave on the world? Is there a particular sort of mission that you have? Um, or, or is it nothing that that well-defined? Is it just kind of a, a continual exploration? <laughs> it is. I'm going to transform the education system into learning and uh, how exactly that happens is uh, still up for debate. Um, but I've been shipping away, designing, building a product. And recently we've been, uh, I guess back in 2012, I started networking with uh, some VCs, some angel investors, and throughout the course of launching apps, keeping them updated on progress, we're now kind of reaching a tipping point where we're either going to uh, raise some money and build this product, or I'm going to build a product and uh, raise money from there. But uh, transform the educational system. I see so many people like uh, you know, Elon Musk and everyone else that are working on things uh, to help make humanity a multi-planetary species, and that's amazing. But I think reforming the existing education system is probably the most important thing that we can do to make huge audacious goals like that down the road happen. And it's not happening fast enough. It's uh, so antiquated and... I think I really believe it hurts kids in such a negative way that um, it's basically now a, you know a race against time to reform the system. And, and you do you sort of believe that technology is the key to improving the system, or do you think it's sort of a change in the way that that people view education? What 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 is the what is going to be the main driver? Yeah. Technology is part of it, but uh, what everything we think of right now as education is basically either coercion or the opposite of learning. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, a negative uh, statement, but I think it's, um, as we move forward, I think we're going to see that just how foolish uh, K through 12 is. Um, the alternative is, you know, kind of a Montessori approach where technology is definitely important. But the second really important part is adding uh, philosophy and adding adversity and adding opportunities for students to build grit. Um, there are many things like, you know, direct experience or, or challenges that are the most defining points of many people's lives, yet somehow they're not classified as uh, vital learning experiences. And, you know, as a culture, we don't really have anything. Uh, there was a, a famous, uh, back in uh, ancient uh, Greece, there was something called the Eleusinian Mysteries. And they, these were like a, a transformative kind of coming of age um, introduction into the culture, into adulthood, uh, kind of a learning experience. And we don't have anything that really resembles that. Um, some might say that, you know, we have the military or we have college, but 
I think we can be much more creative in solutions uh, and alternatives to those. So uh, yeah, so like, you know, just uh, Praxis and things like that. Those are fantastic examples of uh, how that reformation is going to happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it goes along with some of the things like being anti-fragile, this ability to, to really bump into the world and interact with it rather than sort of, you know, okay, let's keep kids sheltered from the world for a really long time in a way as a way to prepare them for it. And, and I can't tell, I can't tell if it's, sometimes I think it's because we underestimate kids and sometimes I think it's because we overestimate them. Right. So, I mean, to the extent that, sure. Oh, well, kids won't be able to handle it if they're, you know, in the real world, we need to kind of have them in, in a protected environment for a really long time. It's kind of a way of underestimating kids ability to learn and adapt and sort of be entrepreneurial and, and figure things out. But on the other hand, and especially in, in the older ages, uh, as kids get in their teens and whatever, I think we, I think we understand what kids are capable of and are sometimes threatened by it. Like, well, let's keep these kids out of the workforce. They're going to, they're going to take jobs and work for much cheaper <laughs> and let's keep kids, Sadly, I, let's keep kids out I of our hair because they're curious and they're tinkering yeah. and they're meddling and they break rules and they, they challenge norms. And it's kind of a, a, you know, somewhat justified fear of what kids are able to do. And I think those combined forces are, are damaging. I think, yeah, it's always good to question, you know, whether or not uh, things like how pervasive things like childism are in, in our society and uh, or ageism or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, uh, Chad, this has been fascinating talking with you. I am super excited about continuing to, um, you know, share share stuff on life learning and continue to I, I go by I check it out almost every day now. Uh, and there's very few things that are part of my daily routine, especially on the consumption side. So, um, keep up the great work over there. And I really look forward to seeing, um, what happens with your mission, uh, to change education and particularly the the project you're working on now. So thanks I'll for coming on. It's yeah. Awesome and, talking, uh, Isaac. absolutely. Chadgrills.com is the website and you can also find on medium, the publication life learning, uh, Chad, thanks again. 